0: Hello SFIA Audio listeners, in this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, we'll take a look at what sorts of alien behemoths might be possible under known science. To hear it and every episode early and ad free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash IsaacArthur and use my code, IsaacArthur. This episode is sponsored by Brilliant, it's our great hope and goal to get out into the galaxy and meet its other occupants, if they exist. But what if it turns out the galaxy is empty because they packed up and went somewhere battle? So today we're back in the Alien Civilization series to take a look at the notion of advanced civilizations transitioning beyond a physical existence or even to another reality. This is a bit of a continuation of last week's Fermi Paradox Extinction episode, and a popular solution for the Fermi Paradox, the Fermi Paradox being the big question of why our Universe, as such a vast and ancient place, seems devoid of any vast and ancient civilizations. Solutions inevitably revolve around the idea that something just makes these civilizations almost never come into existence, stay small or hidden, or go extinct. These all have some element of pessimism to them, and makes the universe, or the process of evolution, seem a much colder place or harsher process than we prefer to view them. A more cheerful notion is that advanced civilizations are much more common but that they prosper and grow to a point where they just don't need to obey the laws of the Universe as we know them or play Darwin's harsh game anymore. They've found something better and more enlightened, which implies we could too if we play our cards right. So it's a popular theme of a lot of science fiction and truth be told, long predates the genre. Many a mythology, theology, or ideology, both past and present, has offered us some better place beyond, the sacred world, as opposed to the material world around us, referred to as the profane world, though the term profane has mutated a bit in modern usage. Needless to say, if such places exist, many folks would understandably want to leave behind the profane world to travel or ascend to that sacred world. One recurring theme we have in the Alien Civilization series that makes it distinct from our Fermi Paradox episodes is that we often approach concepts more from a motivation standpoint rather than just means and opportunity for figuring out how an alien civilization might act. An alien civilization with interstellar ships obviously has the means and opportunity to visit or invade Earth, so we ask what their motivations would be to do so and what actions, in light of such motivations and capabilities, would make sense, then we ask if we can see those as supporting evidence they might exist. You've a very simple and easy motivation to seek to ascend from the profane world to the sacred world for instance. If it exists and can be ascended to, many civilizations will seek to do just that. Of course that doesn't mean they all will or that every member of it will want to, even assuming they can, as it's often implied to be a place or state that has more to do with the mind and ethics of the individual. Plus it's very poorly defined, or maybe it would be better to say it has too many definitions. Nobody's idea of enlightenment and utopia tend to match up too well, let alone different species with completely different evolutionary origins, motivations, and biology. On top of this, you'd have the issue of those who were ultra-evolved and enlightened versus those who merely think they are, which is also of course rather subjective, and many examples in science fiction come off this way, seeming far more smug and aloof than seems merited. This is only the beginning of the problems with the general notion we need to look at, a couple of which aren't problems with the concept so much as using it as a Fermi Paradox solution. Though as we've noted before, just because some behavior or concept doesn't make for a good Fermi Paradox solution doesn't mean nobody does it, and in this series we try to look at those hypothetical civilizations regardless of if it makes good Fermi Paradox solutions, even if sometimes it is just to conclude why such civilizations probably aren't very common. The point of Fermi Paradox solutions is to explain an absence of observable alien civilizations, The ascension approach only works in that regard if it's a one-way trip that prevents you from poking around this universe anymore by rule or inclination. In science fiction such entities usually aren't allowed or inclined to involve themselves with us and our petty mortal concerns, and for good reason. It really wrecks stories when you've got super powerful entities hanging around who intervene all the time, saving the heroes rather than allowing them to save themselves through wit, luck, and perseverance. Of course life is not a story, probably, and stories that feature such entities usually need to cobble together some rationale, often poorly written, for their actions. After all, the presence of some enlightened, super powerful being or beings that transcends reality begs the question as to why they're not constantly helping or crushing our normal, mortal, and relatable heroes, depending on if they're benevolent or malevolent. If those stories get sequels or become a series, the original rationale for why that behavior made sense gets thinner and thinner as the audience contemplates them. Q from the Star Trek series is a great example, depending on the writer he can be comic relief, sinister villain, or even hidden friend and mentor, it's only John Delancey's superb acting that saves the character. Tricksters make for good, ultra-powerful characters in storytelling, you expect their actions to be confusing, often cruel, and not having much point other than for their own amusement and it makes a bit of sense that they can't go too far because they have peers who only tolerate so much mischief. That they tolerate any gets hand-waved away to being aloof, they don't really care that much about lesser beings and our petty problems, but we've got a problem there too. We have a megastructure we discuss a lot on the show called a Matrioska Brain, essentially a massive supercomputer or mind that uses an entire star to power its thinking. And since that's a lot of thinking, it's probably rapidly maxed out the efficiency of computer chips, so it not only is running on a trillion, trillion times more power than whatever device you're watching or listening to this episode on, or that your brain uses, it's probably doing so with orders of magnitude more efficiency too. This isn't necessarily a conscious mind, and it isn't necessarily limited to one mind, this is one option for ascension under known science we'll discuss in a bit. But if it were a conscious mind, that thing would have so much processing power available that it could literally simulate every human that's ever existed simultaneously without even putting a tiny dent in its total processing power, and could even more easily carry on simultaneous conversations with everyone living on Earth, or indeed on every planet in the known Universe, even if every single star had a planet with a human-level species on it. It's just that terrifyingly high powered, and a little more terrifying because that construct requires no higher technology than we have now. Like any Dyson Swarm or Stellar Engine, while more technology helps, it's simply a matter of brute force construction. All you need to build one is a single robot capable of mining resources in space and making copies of itself and following some basic construction something we'll probably have this century or even this next generation. Such a thing might genuinely not care about what the rest of us are doing, but if it does care, even just a little bit, it really could micromanage every single one of our lives constantly with no more proportional effort than throwing some spare change into a donation bucket. So it doesn't matter if it cares about us just a little or an awful lot, the effort involved is just so microscopically tiny. Not a new concept of course, a regular commentary on God, the Demiurge version that is the creator of an entire vast universe, is that the creator doesn't care much about all the little details, but not from a lack of capacity, which is presumably way higher than even a Matrioska brain, which again would barely even notice the processing power used up if every single human called it up for advice on every little problem bugging them. Again it might not care or may prefer a pretty hands-off approach for ethical reasons. Relative intelligence isn't a good reason for not caring of course, you can make a strong argument that being smarter makes you more curious and interested in all the little details, as you can track them all and see their importance easier and understand them better. As we've noted elsewhere, humans are much smarter than insects but we still have an interest in them and many folks make a career of it. Similarly. While we are often quite fond of cute cuddly critters, we'll often take a hands-off approach to them in the wild, even when we'd like to help. That's a fairly common theme for explaining non-intervention by ascended entities too, they don't want to interfere with the natural progression of those below them. I should note though that we will often interfere to stop extinction, and they too might tend to have a red line where they felt compelled to act quite a pain from a storytelling perspective, since you can only show such entities when they are breaking the rules and feeding the wildlife, like how we often see with the ancients in the Stargate franchise, but not a problem in the real world, since they can exist whether we notice them or not. It removes them from the galactic chessboard, which is handy for storytelling but not very realistic, as if they're off the board at all, it's probably merely because they're the chess masters moving all the pieces. However if they care and have the capacity to get involved, you need a reason why they aren't. We Have Rules Against It is one, but requires an explanation of what those rules are, why they matter, why the line between acting and not acting is what it is and isn't arbitrary, and how it's enforced and arbitrated. An alternative but parallel notion is that ascension doesn't necessitate benevolence and that there is some equal but opposite malevolence. Ahriman from Persian mythology or Zoroastrianism would be an example of an equal and opposite evil god we see in dualistic cosmologies. From Stargate we eventually get introduced to the Ori, the evil opposites of the ancients, both from a long-dead civilization where everybody either ascended or died off, and presumably created to deal with the apparent plot hole of ultra-powerful benevolent entities who rarely help the heroes out or possibly because the show was in its ninth season and desperately in need of new villains. The original bad guys, the Goo old, had undergone what is often called villain decay, a common problem of recurring bad guys who, while being way more powerful than the heroes, are repeatedly beaten until they aren't scary or menacing to the audience anymore. Q from Star Trek often came off that way too, as did the Borg, and countless other villains in other series over the years. Indeed, one of the ways of rescuing such bad guys from audience indifference is to flip them over to the good guy side as anti-heroes or teaming up with them against some greater enemy. They did that with both the Old and the Borg, and it gets done with a lot of comic book characters, folks like Magneto or Doctor Doom, or even Thanos or Galactus, Eater of Worlds. You flush them out as characters and make them either more sympathetic or understandable, not just mustache twirlers. Mustache twirlers make for bad villains in stories, largely because they don't seem realistic. A villain has a motive for what they do, don't usually regard themselves as villains, and except for the mischievous trickster, don't do bad stuff for their own amusement, but rather because they viewed it as a necessary evil. This leads folks to ask why they didn't do something else instead. Using Thanos as an example, instead of wishing away half the population of the Universe with the Infinity Gauntlet, why not just wish for twice as many worlds? Or even an alteration to everyone's biology or psychology to achieve his goal? Big bad guys with murky but evil goals raise the question of why they want to do that, and if you turn them into semi-sympathetic big bad guys doing what they consider necessary evils, it begs the question of why the big bad guy can't see the obvious flaws or alternative paths. Of course the exact opposite tends to happen with mysterious but benevolent entities in such stories too. They sit on the sidelines not helping and start coming off as aloof, powerless, or just jokes. There's entire pages over on TV Tropes arguing the cases for and against this or that ancient and powerful species being either benevolent, neglectful, or abusive precursor civilizations. And I'm focusing on all these fictional examples because it's only in this long-running series format that we start noticing the holes in a lot of the behavior and motivations of such ascended critters, benevolent or malevolent. We looked at examples like Cthulhu-style ancient and terrifying entities in our Sleeping Giants episode and you tend to get the same problems, which are fine in fiction until the audience starts noticing the flaws by their constant recurrence but don't really make sense in real world contemplation. Just as an example, that hypothetical Machioska brain we were mentioning earlier could quite easily take copies of everybody's brain and upload them on their death to some virtual paradise. At first, that sounds like an entirely fine approach to non-intervention, as it lets you live out your own life and grow spiritually and so on, and no matter how bad things go, it rescues you afterward to paradise. That's fairly parallel to Uranian theodicy from back in the 2nd century AD, though not a perfect match since classic philosophy or theology on the problem of evil generally only apply if you're dealing with an entity that is specifically infinite. A Matrioska Brain is not, and its hypothetical simulated paradise, its sacred world, is actually beneath and contained within the material profane world it draws on for resources. It's arguable if it's ascended anywhere at all, and indeed you get a reverse case in simulations, since it might create entire new races of folks living in virtual paradise, who. If they ascended from there to the higher reality, our universe where the computers run, they are instead ascending from the sacred world to the profane, and might be rather disappointed in it and want to go back. Which could happen in all cases too, maybe we can access other hypothetical universes above our own, higher realities, or just parallel realities in a multiverse. You might head off to these and decide they aren't all they were cracked up to be and want to come back. That raises another issue, which is one-way trips, which are problematic for many reasons. It could be that a species might find a way to go to some newer, younger universe, devoid of life, full of resources, and low on entropy. You open a gateway there or even create this new universe, and have all your people jump on through, escaping both the inevitable entropic death of the universe and having to compete with any other folks. This idea's got some big problems. First, if it is one way, how the heck did you ever get a report back from there confirming it's a right plum waiting to be picked? And if you haven't got that proof, how are you convincing folks to jump on through? Every single one of them needs to make a rather literal leap of faith. It would be completely reasonable and inevitable that some would not. On the flip side, if it is a two-way street, there's nothing stopping you from coming back for visits, or just importing resources from there. You ought to be able to construct an entropy violating engine using that too, giving you an infinite power source. Indeed, in EM Bank's cultural series, Our Books of the Month, they draw on just such an approach for powering their starships, reaching to what they call the grid for their energy. And this grid also blocks them from inter universal travel, kind of like the Earth's mantle in a way great power source but hard to pass through, and it's implied that more advanced civilizations eventually figure out how and jump into new universes on the other side of the grid to explore them or just avoid entropy. Ascension is a great way in a story to clear the setting of pesky elder races who've been around for millions or even billions of years and ought to have colonized everything themselves already. Or at least play King of the Hill and tell everyone else what the rules are and how things will go. It does always require asking two questions, though. First, why don't they help others do the same, just leaving instructions behind on how to build the Ascendomatic or gateway to their own personal universe? And if it's greed to keep all the resources to themselves, why aren't they keeping this universe in their pocket too? or leaving behind automated armadas to purge the Universe of any potential future competitors that might follow them. Second, what happened to everyone who didn't go? A lot of authors just skip this point entirely, which is one heck of a hand wave, points to Peter F. Hamilton in his Commonwealth Saga for noting that problem. Not everyone is going to be into Ascension, especially if it requires a leap of faith, and those folks left over shouldn't just disappear. Though even there his example, the Anamine, who mostly ascended after a period of playing Guardians of the Galaxy, left behind a Remnant who was just focused on living a primitive life. Some other authors have done that too, but in this case the Remnant wasn't ignorant of what their transcendent ancestors had done, nor did those other folks clean up all their high-tech artifacts, they just didn't want to do it themselves. The flaw is that they were strangely binary in their approach. Transcend, or sit on their homeward farming. One could argue that almost everyone of an explorer mindset jumped in the ascendomatic, but even if we assume nobody left behind felt like further exploring, colonizing, or policing the galaxy at that time, why in the heck didn't a single member of a following generation? It is a great book series, by the way, another of our books of the month, but like many a story, it's got some weaknesses on examination. As I've mentioned that's pretty much unavoidable if you want to tell a story in a galaxy full of ancient civilizations, of powerful entities, and still have your main characters be human and relatable yet somehow relevant and capable of dealing with galactic crises. This is a recurring issue with a lot of foamy Paradox solutions, they emerge out of science fiction or get popularized there and the author does a great job of making it sound plausible. In reality, some advanced civilization that leaves a remnant behind is either going to watch over that remnant, leave something behind for anyone to follow who wants to, or just abandon them entirely. If that lasts, then a few generations later you'll have a whole new crew of folks wanting to go out and explore and build, probably aided by all the junk and libraries their ancestors left behind, not to mention likely being very evolved or genetically enhanced or similar. Giving them a head start to repeat the process. Even if that just resulted in recurring waves of settlement then ascension, that is very much not an absence from the galactic scene. If they do leave behind the ascendomatic, or portals to new ripe universes, why aren't they also leaving those for other civilizations too? I suppose they might be really racist, but we usually assume they are pretty enlightened. Of course they don't have to be, and I did mention the Ancients and the Ori from Stargate earlier and how everybody either ascended or died off and the Ori were jerks. It's entirely plausible some scenarios for this might involve ideological wars where their pro-ascension faction, or factions, wiped out the remnants on accident or on purpose. But if they're interstellar that almost has to be on purpose. Since even if the Ascendematic had the unintended consequence of vaporizing wards or entire solar systems, you presumably don't flip them on in every single colony at the same time. You'd also expect any grand war between such factions to have unaligned refugees fleeing to new space, and there's no reason to assume they are going to opt for techno primitivism and do that forever or have the exact same argument about ascension on their wards, just a few generations later. Now a big caveat to that is assuming they're actually interstellar when all this happens. Our nominal ascension on the cheap method of dumping everyone into a simulation in a Machioska brain for instance doesn't actually require interstellar flight. It doesn't even require a fully assembled Machioska, with its many trillions of trillions of times more processing power than a human brain which is probably going to be overkill for solving almost any scientific problems we still have yet to crack. As I mentioned, that isn't an object that requires you already be an ancient galaxy-spanning civilization to make. And while the power levels available to such a construct are far more than sufficient to let you engage in interstellar travel, even ignoring all the new technologies such levels of computation and mind simulation probably are discovering, you might easily have such a thing assembled in its entirety before your ships have reached all but the closest worlds. Indeed even its tiny early version, when you first begin construction, is likely enough. It's entirely possible we'd have computers on Earth quite capable of emulating human minds, maybe all of them, before we ever had the first person born on another world, even just Mars or the Moon. Or computers powerful enough to solve some formula for popping open gateways to new universes, so nobody has an interest in spending centuries on some tin can creeping toward another star. I still can't see us abandoning our presence in this Universe, not even if these new places offered an infinite buffet of resources and excitement. Some folks would remain, even if just to guard the gateway maybe, and if not, if we needed to leave no gate, then we need fear no alien invasion behind us, and might as well use some of the now redundant resources of this solar system to let any such critters know how to do as we did. Same basic reasoning there as why you don't invade a primitive planet messing up its own ecosystem, you just send them the plans for devices that let them avoid doing that, or send them a volley of relativistic kill missiles. Which obviously won't help the environmental problems much, but if you're that much of a smug and aloof species, which won't help even when you easily can, genocidal tendencies wouldn't be too surprising either. That is the problem with aloof aliens in general, be they ascended to higher planes of existence or just ultra-powerful, we can hand-wave at non-intervention approaches initially, but the more one thinks on it, the less it really makes sense as an ethical policy or one you could actually enforce. See the Smug Aliens episode for more on that, But the abandonment for better places, regardless of if you leave a remnant behind who doesn't want to come or to show others how to go, it has the question of what's actually making these places better. I mean sure, a low entropy universe is just handy, but only for power and resources, so you only migrate if it's a one-way trip, otherwise you just go there to colonize, same as colonizing new worlds here and set up trade. Now it could be stuff like dimensions where the speed of light was way higher allowing faster travel, or weirder stuff like places with four physical dimensions, or types of matter and energy we don't have here, or entirely new things comparable to those that don't exist here, but that doesn't seem to offer a case for total abandonment of our universe, and we'll explore higher dimensional aliens another time. Of course we don't even know if such places exist, let alone how to travel to them, and nobody is sending us invitations or directions for a visit. So for now, we're stuck in our Universe, but it's a pretty awesome place still full of wonders and mysteries to explore, so there's no big rush. Speaking of all those awesome wonders and mysteries in our Universe, and exploring them, while we can't send ships out yet to take a first-hand look, we have been learning more and more every year and if you're interested in exploring the Universe and how it works from the comfort of your own home, and at your own pace, try out Brilliant. Their online interactive math, science, and computer science courses and daily challenges let you enhance your knowledge of math and science with easy to learn interactive methods. To make it even easier, Brilliant now lets you download any of their dozens of interactive courses through the mobile app and you'll be able to solve fascinating problems in math, science, and computer science no matter where you are or how spotty your internet connection. If you'd like to learn more science, math, and computer science, go to Brilliant.org slash Isaac and sign up for free. And also, the first 200 people that go to that link will get 20% off the annual Premium subscription, so you can solve all the daily challenges in the archives and access dozens of problem solving courses. So we were talking about exploring strange new wonders and worlds in our Universe, and beyond, and many of those are potentially hostile places, indeed almost everything off this planet is. Space is often described as a vast empty place, but it's not empty, it's full of lots of radiation and dangerous, hypervelocity micrometeors. Next week we'll be exploring the spacesuits of the future, from the Neotorm to the really high tech including ones that might let you dive down into gas giants or walk around on the surface of molten hot worlds like Venus. The week after that we'll look at how to cool Venus down and terraform it in Winter on Venus. For lots when those and other episodes come out, make sure to subscribe to the channel and hit the notifications bell, and if you enjoyed this episode hit the like button and share it with others. And if you want to join in on the discussion of this topic or any of our others, leave a comment below or join our Facebook, Discord, or Reddit groups, Science and Futurism with Isaac Arthur, or head over to the website, IsaacArthur.net, and check out our forums, and all of those are linked in the episode description below. Until next time, thanks for watching and have a great week.